now we have about 40, 45 minutes, and we'll see how far we get there. I hope you had a good lunch and that you feel refreshed and you have lots of questions for when we have a general question and answer session later in the afternoon. Now, um, I wanted to give you various quotations, but before I do so, I realize that uh, I have not read out a story with which I usually begin my talks. Some of you may know this story, I don't know. But it is a story that was actually uh, written up and experienced by Gene Houston, the American uh, founder of the Association of Mind Research and past president of the American Association for Humanistic Psychology. And at the 1980 Festival for Mind, Body, and Spirit, she gave the following talk, which was transcribed. But she writes about this also at much greater length in her autobiography, A Mythic Life, Learning to Live Our Greater Story, which was published by Harper San Francisco in 1996. So this story is entitled Old Mr. Teyer. It's spelled T-E-Y-E-R, Teyer. That's how she understood it. Old Mr. Teyer. And it's an experience from my childhood. Some people find this very touching. I, does anybody know this story? So yeah, you know the story. I'd like to begin by talking about a very high human being and what he was like. I was 13 years old and I was late for high school and I would run, run, run. One day, I ran into an old man and knocked the wind out of him. I picked him up and he said to me in a French-English accent, are you planning to run like that for the rest of your life? And I said, yes, sir, it looks like that way. And then he said, well, bon voyage then. <laughs> A week later, I ran into him again in the same place, 83rd Park Avenue, Street Park Avenue, and he said, ah, my friend, the runner, and you have a fox terrier. Hmm, I had one of those just like that in France. And then he said, where are you going? Well, I said, sir, I'm taking Champ, that was her dog, to Central Park. And he said, well, I'll go with you, okay? This is in 1954, just to tell you this, 54 to 55. Um, and he used to transfer, uh, Taya used to cross Central Park to go to his office. He was living on the other side with the Jesuits, and then he used to go to Central Park to go to the uh, American um, Museum of Natural History on the other side of Central Park. So he said, where are you going? I said, well, sir, I'm taking Champ to Central Park. He said, well, I'll go with you, okay? And she, he said, I will take my constitutional, right? So old Mr. Taya, for this was how she knew him, and I began to take these walks, and they were something, because he had underlined, he had no self-consciousness at all. He was falling in love every minute with everything, he would suddenly fall to his knees and see a caterpillar and say, Oh, Jean, the caterpillar, mm, the caterpillar. What is a caterpillar becoming, transforming, metamorphosis? He loved the word metamorphosis and transformation. He said, Jean, feel yourself to be the caterpillar, the caterpillar of yourself. Feel the metamorphosis. And what are you when you become a butterfly? Then suddenly he would look at the sky and say, Jean, look at the clouds, God's calligraphy in the sky. 
And then he would say, sniff the wind. Same wind sniffed by Jesus Christ. Same wind sniffed by Jean d'Arc, by Caesar. Feel the tides of history flowing through you. And then I would feel myself related to all time and history. He seemed to know a great deal about bones and old stones. He addressed everything as thou. And he had full sensory feeling. It was like he had 200 senses working at the same time. My friend, the geological layer, do you remember? The go on, I would say. And he would go on. And people began to follow us around, not laughing, but they came with us. They were with us. He related everything to everything else. It became a vast, interwoven, interdependent, resonant tapestry. Somebody's red hat, the geological layer, the sun, the clouds, ourselves, our souls, and you began to see things as whole. He was totally resonant, totally diaphanous, no self-consciousness. Life just flooded through him. And I would go home and say to my mother, Mom, I met my old man, and when I'm with him, underline, I leave my littleness behind. Because he looked at you as if you were God in hiding, and you had to rise to that occasion and become that. And I grew more in that year than I ever did in any other time of my life, that luminous, glorious year when we took those walks. Then one day, Dog and I were waiting, waiting, 83rd Street, because we walked about once or twice a week for a year, and he didn't show up. Turned out he had died, but I didn't know that at the time. Years later, I read a book without a cover, and that book was enormously familiar. The book is called The Phenomenon of Man. That was what it was called. It's now called The Human Phenomenon, in a better translation. Its words were just too familiar. Its words were resonances, echoes from my past. And I say, too familiar, metamorphosis, noosphere. And I said, do you have a picture of the author? And they said in the shop, yes, beautiful picture on the back, look. And they gave me the jacket of the book. And of course, it was my old man, Mr. Teilhard de Chardin, the great, great poet, philosopher, priest, paleontologist, one of the great evolutionary turning seeding minds of the 20th century. To, totally diaphanous. To experience, to life, and many senses. Like a child he was at that time when I knew him. Going on to 75, well, he was 74. Like my other great friend, she was like this, Margaret Mead, she was 76. They kept that glory and wonder of childhood. They literally became what they beheld. As the great childman Walt Whitman says, I become what I behold. So that's quite a captivating story. So you get an idea of his presence. When you think he was, I mean, he was actually old and quite ill, uh, and he died you know, shortly afterwards of a heart attack very suddenly. Uh, I mean, that he still could have this uh, connection with a girl of 13 that he didn't know at all. And, and get her so enwrapped and interested in his ideas is really quite extraordinary. Now, someone just said, the phenomenon of man, what's that? Teilhard had a phenomenology, as it's technically described, not like the European philosopher Edmund Husserl, but the more, what is the phenomenon is what you see, I mean, not only in a physical sense, but also in a mental, intellectual, and spiritual sense. 
And he spoke, he speaks about the phenomenon of man, the human phenomenon, it's le phénomène humain, the human phenomenon in the history of the universe. What is the human phenomenon? But he felt you had to address everything that you examine or study as a phenomenon in the sense that, you know, how does it present itself? What does appear? What does shine through? What does it possibly mean? What is its depth dimension? What is its center? So he, you know, he, I've got a little, this is from one of my books, you can't see this. This is a lot of concentric circles because Thea was very keen making diagrams, particularly in his there. I, I mean, I could put this on the, on here. You see, where the whole universe or the whole circle of evolution, you have in that the phenomenon of man, the evolution of the universe, late. But Teya looks at lots of other phenomena, uh, and you see the phenomenon of man, oops, I mustn't fall, uh, is animated. You know, our spiritual energy resources, our zest for life has a lot to do with what he calls the phenomenon of religion, which is here, you know, phenomenon of religion. If that's a phenomenon of man, that's a phenomenon of religion within the human species. And then in, within that, you have the phenomenon of spirituality. And within that, you have the phenomenon of mysticism. This is very inadequately drawn, I apologize. And within the phenomenon of mysticism, the center of that is a phenomenon of... I come to love a little bit later, but I want to just show you how he actually tried to... He hasn't done this. This is an adaptation, adaptation of what he has in some of his diaries. How he tries to really integrate and relate everything to everything else. You know, how you have a sort of... A continuous nesting in, you know, the deeper you dig, the more you discover, and the more, and the more, and the more, and what is right at the center shines back all through, through all the different levels. So it's very, very dynamic, very dynamic, very process-oriented, very on the, go on the way, going somewhere, going somewhere. You see, and he was always going somewhere. He said, when he came from his big Mongolian expedition in 1924, he said, Um, I am coming back at the end. This is the, if you like, the summation of his insight. I am a pilgrim of the future. He's completely future-oriented. I'm the pilgrim of the future returning from a... Oh, and really dig, dig deep down into the roots of our past, but that no consequence if we then don't push forward towards the future. His priority to is the, uh, the future and the role of the spirit. Those two he wants to give really primacy to, the future and the spirit. And if we become aware of that, we can really relate to that and co-create and co be co, uh, how should I say, co-creators of building up the earth, building up the spirit in the earth, of the earth, and building up the cosmic body of Christ, because Teya believed that body was not yet complete. So what he writes at some stage, he says, how he feels really about this, this is written at the end of his life. Throughout my life, by means of my life, the world has little by little caught fire in my sight. It has become, until a flame, 
a flame all around me, it has become wholly luminous from within. Such has been my experience in contact with the earth. I mean, this is matter. This is really being, you know, digging the earth, looking at the rocks, looking at the bones, at the stones. You know, this very concrete, tangential contact. It's not just sort of thought up in a private study, sitting in an armchair and having kind of intellectual dreams and, and promenades around the place, or not around the place, but around your own mind. No, it is my experience in contact with the earth, the diaphany of the divine at the heart of a universe in, uh, on fire. That is, that's in the heart of matter. And then he writes again, in the human phenomenon, he writes, the best success I can dream for my life, colon, are to have spread a new vision of the world. That is the best success I dream for. So he, he was very aware that he was, you know, quite a prophetic kind of figure. I mean, I could give you many quotations, and I will give you three or two. Let me just see. Um, where I, when I pick up letters, which are, you know, some things I read 20, 30, 40 years ago, and I've all marked them, and I've forgotten what's in them, and I pick them up, and each time I read it at a different level or in a different way, and I see connections which I didn't see before, because I, I'm sure you have had this with your reading, that, you know, you, you really begin to understand more. You see connections where before you didn't see the connections. So that's also the richness of a life experience you, you put into it. You get out, to it, out of it what you put into it. Now, Teilhard wrote in 1929 in a letter to one of his priest friends. He writes, this is quite a revolutionary quotation, from the prophet. I mean, he didn't call himself a prophet. This is uh, uh, an attribute given to him by others. It sometimes seems to me that there are three perishable stones sitting dangerously in the foundations of the modern church, particularly Catholic church. First, a government which excludes democracy, first thing. Second, a priesthood which excludes and minimizes women, 1929, pretty early. Third, a revelation which excludes prophecy for the future. You know, he feels really, he is open to the new winds of change, to, to things happening. Um, now there's another one. He writes, no, this is from the divine milieu. All around us, the physical sciences are ceaselessly discerning new relationships between elements of the universe. Is the Christ of the Gospels Im imagined and loved within the dimensions of the Mediterranean world? Is this Christ still capable of embracing and forming the center of our prodigiously expanding universe? Is not the world in the process of becoming more vast, more close, more dazzling than the God we believe in? Will it not burst our religions asunder? Will it not eclipse our God? That was written in 1927, quite a long time ago, 19, almost 90 years ago, 1927. So he really felt that our God is too small. Our image and understanding of God is too small. And he says this very, very often. You know, he is, I, I gave a lecture once, and um, 
it's not the death of God. Yeah, this is what it says. It's not the death of God. It's God. It's the wrong image of God. The God that is too small. People who speak about the death of God, they don't know what that God is like. They haven't got a clue, really, sometimes. When I hear some of these new atheists, I can't believe how little they know of religion. I mean, I say this as a religion scholar because, you know, some of the things that are quoted by, what is it called, Dawkins, but I've heard other people also. Uh, I mean, they're so incredibly uh, primitive, I wouldn't allow a student to get away with this in an essay, so. <laughs> it's true, it's absolutely true. They haven't got a clue what the field is about. They don't treat religion scientifically the way they treat their own data. This is all I can say. Now then. We come to the next session. I must make sure that I do all the things that I have promised to do. And I'm going to now look more closely at the divine milieu. I just have to keep a track of the time. I get confused. A quarter to past two. We already got to finish in 10 minutes. Is that true? <laughs> so I've, I've hardly started. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I will never get through this. Um, now, I, have, I think I have, dis I have covered most of the things I was going to cover now. I've covered some of those this morning. So living in the divine, we have talked about discovering the divine in the blazing depths of blazing matter. And I have spoken about this new way of seeing this fire, the daphne, the discovery of evolution, and the divine milieu, which is celebrated in the hymn of matter. Now, living in the divine, you see, the, the, the book, The Divine Milieu, uh, I just sh should explain this. Uh, it was published in English in the hardcover. It's actually um, published as Le Milieu Divin. They have kept the French title because the translators could not agree what the right translation of this term le was, because it was actually a new invention. And you know, what is this? They tried all sorts of uh, different translations which didn't work. So they decided they leave le milieu divin. So some, um, you see, and then the Americans, you see here you have le milieu divin, but then later books have simply taken the divine milieu, just translated it. But people have no idea what this means because I encounter. So uh, we have to really retrace what they are meant by it. And I have tried to explain this. What he says this at the beginning in the kind of introduction uh, and preface, but then uh, it starts immediately with the divinization. That's really about part one. And then he studies the divinization of our activities and of our passivities. So the divine milieu is, is a presence. It's a, it affects both individuals and the community. And it is related to a stream of becoming a progressive spiritualization through complexification, if that's too, abs uh, too complex. So it's related to the oneness of humanity but it is related to a process, really, which has to achieve this oneness. The oneness is not given. I mean, we have oneness at the level of the species, but we have not oneness yet at the level of uh, community or the level at 
of spiritual unity in the sense that you understand the building up of the body of Christ. You see, if you think, we have a very, very developed new earth consciousness, as you can see in the movement, and in all these various things that have developed, but uh, we are not spiritually united. We are not looking at things together. We conscious more among certain people of the population than at others. But already in 1971, Indira Gandhi asked in an international meeting the former president, uh, vice former, uh, asked in a UN meeting, will the sense of a new earth, what I call a new earth consciousness, will the sense of the earth being one, will this also lead to a new sense of the earth community, of the oneness of the human community. We are so concerned with the biosphere, with the living things, which living beings which include us, but it's a biosphere particularly in terms of animals and plants and, and the ecological balance and sustainability and so on, that we do not sufficiently sometimes pay attention to the human and how the human factor is both the the factor of destruction, willful destruction, whether it's fracking or whatever. I mean, the, the, the whole ecological discussion, including ecologists, there's, there's so much to say. But Teilhard would have been most interested, I'm sure, engaged in this, because that has all developed since his uh, death. In fact, it began to have developed before, because I found the use of, of the word ecological in one or two of his writings. So he must have been aware in the mid-1950s, what was actually beginning to emerge, you know. I mean, he was so influenced by the Swiss um, geologists, uh, by the Swiss scientist uh, Suess, who created the word biosphere in 18, I think in 1874, it's around about that time. And the biosphere, Teja just loved this, the biosphere, and he was a great promoter of the word, the biosphere, and he saw it really as expressing the oneness of the earth. And uh, Seuss wrote also a four-volume companion uh, study, uh, scientific textbook, I expect, called, uh, in English, The Face of the Earth, called Das Anlitz der Erde. Well, and Teilhard loved this expression so much that he used it for an essay he wrote in 1921, I think, The Face of the Earth, because he suddenly said, you know, we're not just looking at rivers here and mountains there and, and little bits here and little It is one earth, one globe that has one face. You know, it's oneness, the oneness of the sphere. And that is why he felt, you know, we have to work for the oneness of humanity, for much greater collaboration and integration. It's very important, that thinking, in his, in his work. And that's also why he then spoke uh, in 1925, from 1925 onwards, he used the word noosphere, which he coined with uh, French philosopher Edouard Leroy. Uh, the noosphere, I hope you can all spell this, but I can also write it up because it's very important. Let me put this in black account. The noosphere. I think I explained it, I must have mentioned it this morning, about the sphere of the mind, this, this uh, uh, characteristically human development of critical self-consciousness. Now let me just get back to my...
So Teilhard, if he doesn't explain it in detail, or he doesn't explain it at the level of our level of knowledge that we have now, but we have to make the connections, he felt really that living in the divine milieu is concerned with trying to develop our oneness, the oneness of humanity, to really try and work and live together in the divine milieu by relating to the spiritual dimension in our evolutionary um, process of development and linking or, or collaboration, he calls it collaborating with the hands of God to, to really build up a body that ultimately will um, find its uh, completion or summit in the spiritual reality. So he speaks about the divinization of our activities and passivities. I mentioned this before. Uh, I could quote, but I'm now a bit uh, hesitant about the time. What is important is that he, he feels really, he wants, to, he wants to stress that we are actively engaged, but we, we need to also spend as much time thinking about our passivities, and that generally speaking, we think we are more active than passive, that we are just not so passive, whereas he says it's exactly the other way around, that we are, more, uh, we are not passive in the sense of not doing anything, but he understands the word passivities in the sense of what is done to us rather than what we, than what we do. You know, what is done to us or what is given to us. Like, for example, the most basic and the most massive passivity, if you like, is the gift of life. You know, and we have not had any influence over our genes, over our being born, about you know, what is given to us in terms of in which milieu we are born, where, how we are educated. You know, everything, if you see this all as passivities rather than the passive word in a more narrow sense, then you have an immense realm of human experience which is more developed and extensive than the activities. And the passivities, he also looks at the, uh, you know, the, the passivities, he speaks about the passivities of diminishment and the passivities of, um, I mean, the suffering, the diminishment, the, how should I say, um, the ultimate passivity, if you like, is itself that also comes under that. So there is this question of how do we overcome death by finding God in it? That's what he asks, you know. What is the transfiguration of our own diminishments? How can we, how do we struggle with God to come, you know, to come to kind of uh, peaceful, harmonious acceptance of what is happening to us? So there, there is, you know, there is so much in his thought there that I feel uh, one needs to really read these passages and reflect on them almost sentence by sentence. You know, for example, he speaks, also has got a whole section the meaning of the cross, you know, how he sees the cross as something that uh, is not only a sign of suffering, but also a sign of developing, of flowering, of relating uh, humans in, in ways that are quite different and new from what was there in the past. So uh, he, he can speak, you know, I mean, I find when he speaks about the divine milieu, he writes, for example, by means of all 
created things without exception, the divine assails us, um, molds us, penetrates us. We imagine the divine, the spirit, as distant, as inaccessible, whereas we live steeped in its burning layers, which is a very powerful phrase. You know, we, live, we are living steeped in its burning layers. But we haven't learned to see. We don't feel it. We don't look at it this way. See, we have not been educated to look at it this way. So it's quite revolutionary the way he presents it. He's not the only one to speak about the imminence of the spirit in, in nature and in creation and so on. But he, he says it with a force and with a, a conviction which is very, very powerful. So I wanted to find some... Uh, passages I wanted to read out. And then I come to Christ in all things. If I have the time, I'll do that. Um, Up until now, to adore has meant to prefer God to things by referring them to God, by sacrificing them to God. Now adoration means the giving of our body and soul to creative activity joining that activity to God to bring the world to fulfillment by effort and intellectual exploration. Now here he has a passage, I love this passage, I quote this quite often, uh, just trust life. And he writes somewhere, life is never mistaken. Trust life, it will bring you high if only you are careful in selecting in the maze of events those influences or paths which can bring you each time a little more upward Life has to be discovered and built up step by step. It's of great charm if only one is convinced by faith and experience that the world is going somewhere. The world is going somewhere. Now, of course, all this is also related to the energies of transformation, the energies of awakening the spirit on earth. And he feels that if we, if we practice these virtues, you might say, if we practice or seek the divinization of our activities and passivities, we, con we contribute to building up the, or helping to move forward to develop the growth of the spirit in the world. But this is particularly animated. You see, he speaks about the spiritual energy resources. And this morning we had a discussion about the role of interface dialogue and the different religions. Now, Teilhard gave several talks or, or wrote par, um, passages for the World Congress of Faith meetings of his friends in Paris, of the World Congress of Faith. It, it, its name in French was L'Union des Croyants, the Union of Believers. And he wrote several, and they are very, very interesting, because uh, the first one, the, the opening of the uh, group, the, the opening speech is called Faith in Man, Faith in the Human Being, you know, how to develop the human side, what to do, and how we can animate this through our uh, religious beliefs and practices. And he is very, very interested in the notion of spiritual energy resources. You know, he's very struck by the whole place of energy in the universe and in the material, physical development, but he says, we, as human beings, need psychic and spiritual energies. And where do they come from? How can we develop them? 
And this is a subject matter that fascinates me. Where do we get them from? Well, you can get them from all sorts of places, things, people, events, experiences. But you see, this is where the divinization of our activities and passivities is a particular kind of um, recipe, if you like. It's a particular path to develop or, or get access to spiritual energy resources which can nourish your life, not just your interior life, but your practical life. But what he says is that, see, he was so, so absolutely obsessed with this idea about energy resources. He wanted to uh, found an institute for the study of human energetics. And in fact, uh, uh, Frank Kerr, an American Jesuit, run such an institute at one of the American universities for some time, but I don't think it exists anymore. But it is very, very interesting because what Tega says is we're not having less religion. In fact, we need more religion, not in the traditional sense, but in this more spiritualized sense because these religious traditions preserve the memory and hand down visions of the spirit of the ultimate experiences which are very important for animating our life today. And he feels that really we have to uh, draw on these spiritual energy resources, that humans have to work politically, economically, culturally, be creative, but all that has to also be sustained and animated by spiritual energy resources. Why are we doing this? How are we doing this? What's the ultimate meaning of this? So this is very, very important in his way of thinking, because otherwise, how can we go forward? How can we go upward? Now, um, in all this, you have the absolutely um, most powerful and most active energy resource is the power of love. Teya speaks about not only the animation of our activities and our way of going forward, but he talks about the sur-animation, su the super-animation, if you like. Just as he says, we are at a historical moment now where it's not a question just about the survival of the human species, given that we could you know, bomb ourselves to death and annihilation. No, he said it's not about the mere survival of humans. It's about more than survival. It's about a higher life. I mean, in English, they translate it super life. In survie in French, it's about a higher life, about a higher step upwards. Not just, you know, you live on, but you just live in the same way. It doesn't really matter. Like some people live their life like this, you know, just a matter of routine. It goes on and on and on and on, but nothing much happens or much, nothing much develops. No, he means that we have to develop the dynamic onto this level of a higher sense of being alive. And you can be that alive even when you're physically quite ill. So, you know, he writes about his, one of his sisters was for 30 years bedridden, had an incurable disease, and she was, she was the secretary of the French uh, Union of the, um, of the Ill. They had some kind of Catholic group and they had newsletters and so on and so forth. And she asked her brother, to write something, and he wrote for her and for this group about the energies of suffering, to get, to draw energies from really, from the pain and from the, well, how do you do this? This sounds perhaps ridiculous to some people, but when you start thinking about this and when you're actually looking at this, 
you can see how powerful our psyche is and our, our spirit, how we can, we can really make a turnaround and, and empower ourselves in ways we are often not aware at first, if you really try and start exploring that path. So uh, it, it is most remarkable. So what Teilhard writes about, I mean, very famous is a quotation by him, which comes at the end of an essay which is actually called The Evolution of Chastity in 1934, where he finishes up where the day will come, one day will come, when after we have harnessed the powers of energy and gravity and all these other powers, the sea and whatever, we will harness for God the powers of love. And then for the second time, humanity will have discovered fire, fire. He's always on about the discovery or the rediscovery about fire to make it animate. And he feels really, he talks about love as an energy which has been understated, minimized, narrowed down just to emotional or sexual love or love between friends, or love in the family, or in the tribe. But he says love is at root a cosmic force. It's a powerful force. The cosmos wouldn't exist. Love is basically the power of attraction, of coming together, of synthesis. You see, it is this power of fusion, if you like. And he writes about this very, very powerful. Now he writes in... Um, this is, from the, this is from an early text from 1919. He wrote, a, he wrote a short essay which is somewhat problematic, like some of his essays are. It's a little essay called The Eternal Feminine. And he writes, love, love in the sense of errors, lies at the bottom of all that is of concern to human beings. It is our salvation and our loss, the very stuff, maybe, of which all great desires are made. Is it not incredible that in all the many centuries in which our writers have been criticizing and seeking to restrain this, to restrain the power of love, not one has asked himself where that passion comes from, where it is going, what share of evil it contains, and what there is on the contrary in its power which should be diligently fostered so that it may be transformed into the love of God. Now, he talks a lot about the love and about super love, and uh, it is just amazing. I know an American uh, writer and poet, she's written a whole book, Awakening the Energies of Love, inspired by Teilhard Roshada, um, Awakening the Energies of Love in the Human Community. Now, Teilhard speaks about, he thinks this will happen, that this fire will be struck and come, you know, that people will become more aware, consciously aware of the energies of love. And... Uh, he, um, he created a name, a created a word for this, which is called the process of, uh, oops, of amorization. Can you see that at the back? Can't you? Amorization. That's fairly late in his life, amorization. Now, I can't give uh, you a full account of this, but what I want to say is that Tiyas very... Um, creative, but not systematically gathered um, comments on love are very, very extraordinary because he feels that we need to study the powers of love as well as the powers of mysticism and the powers of religion 
in ways that they haven't been done before, much, much more what he calls scientifically. That the power of science, you know, which we just see in terms of natural sciences, basically, but that's the power of the human mind to be able to see things differently and to analyze them and to evaluate them or to, to group them, to classify them. He feels that we have done this with the natural phenomena and we have done it up to a point with our health. We have not done it with the human spirit in the same sense. And we have not done it with the powers of love. The powers of love have not been studied, taught, or applied systematically in the human community. Even though you have the practice of charity in virtually all the faiths, you know, doing something for your neighbor, do, but it's not enough. It's too small. It has remained too small. So that's an important idea to think of in terms of the growth of the spirit and the awakening of the spirit. Now, what is very uh, extraordinary, is another coincidence which I find extraordinary, is that, is, um, that besides Teilhard de Chardin, a Russian-American sociologist, who is actually the founder of the sociology department in Harvard University, a man called Peter Sorokin, who you may not uh, know of, uh, but it doesn't matter. You don't need to. I don't know whether I can get this. Peter Sorokin, I'm not sure that I pronounce this man properly. He lived roughly at the same time as Steyer, uh, except he lived until the 1960s, late 1960s. So I haven't got the, my data in the head. I've written on this, but I can't remember all the dates. All I want to say at this stage is that Sorokin has written a book called The Ways and Power of Love. And that was done in 1954. He had a big, he had a big research grant at Harvard. And he studied the powers of love. That's the most extraordinary book. It's just huge. And it does, in a much more systematic uh, way than Teya, uh, study the powers of love. But he says almost verbatim similar things to Teya. But the two men never. They never ever knew of each other's existence. And this is really quite extraordinary. I mean, he fell out with Sasa and he had to go into prison two or three times, I can't remember exactly, before the Russian Revolution. And then after the Russian Revolution, he was again in, in prison, and he was condemned to death. And it was Lenin who saved him, because he, by then, uh, Sorokin was a trained sociologist teaching at the university, what was then still the University of Petersburg, the first Russian sociologist, and he was supposed to get decapitated. But he was saved at the last minute, and he had to leave the country with his wife. He first went to what was then Shekai, and from there he went to Harvard. And he is particularly known among sociologists about um, theory of the rise and fall of cultures, how human cultures, different cultures around the world in dif different populations have either a primarily idealistic or materialistic orientation, and how you get like a curve, an up and down in the materialist phase in the late 19th is more or less coming to an end, and we might go into a more idealistic phase again. And how? But Sorokin, he 
has, he has a more systematic sociological account than Teilhard. Teilhard has a more scientific, uh, from, from a natural science point of view, some differences between these two men. But their basic insight is that we as a human community, which is now global, have not used the resources, the spiritual resources, particularly the resources of love, which is a very powerful transformative energy, which has been used in small groups for the work of charity, but which has not been expanded and extended to the whole community around the globe. So we must study the powers and ways of love in a very systematic, scientific sense, the way we have never done before. And Sorokin spends about 500 pages explaining this to you. So it's a pretty massive work. <laughs> but it is it's completely, I mean, the sociologists have completely written this off. This is just humbug. Because he did this in 10 years, 1954, and no, not nine. Yeah, and then the book completely became not extinct, but it was no longer in print. And then it was reprinted in 2002 by the Templeton Foundation. That's how I found it. I found it in 2002. I was just absolutely gobsmacked. I couldn't believe that this man had written these things. I thought I was reading Thea. And the interesting thing is that after Thea's death, the French Catholic sociologists, they had the brilliant idea. They were obviously, there were some people, clever people aware that this was a case. So they invited Sorokin to come to one of their sociological conferences where they were assessing, this is in 1965 or so, were assessing Thea's idea. And Sorokin, who is an absolutely fascinating character, was also quite arrogant. And he said, this man has nothing written that I haven't said already before. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't get dialogue. This is a perfect way of not having dialogue. I'm just telling you this, aperçus, but anyway. <laughs> you get, it gives you something to think. Look up Sorokin, there's plenty of Sorokin on the web. I've, now, have I got time? I, I have overrun my time, but I wanted to say quite a bit about Christ in all things. Have I got the time or have I not got the time? Yes, yeah. How we do? Now, wait a minute. We are supposed to, when I'm supposed to finish for 14.50. Oh, gosh, I've already overrun questions and answers. We are on the question and answer period now, aren't we? Well, let me just, um, I think I want to share something with you. Let me just get the most important things. Uh, there's too much. This is another lecture altogether. Um, Christ in all things. You see, the last word of the divine milieu, the editor of the divine milieu in 19, whenever this was edited, 1960 or whatever, 65, he quotes from, um, not only from Teilhard's, um, what is it called? Um, how, um, no, you see, my, my memory leaves me now. Uh, he quotes here, let's just see. Um, he said, I mean, the editor says, no work of this great believer can be understood except in relation to this fundamental vision, Teya's fundamental vision of the divine milieu. This vision, always implicit, even when not stated, his vision of Christ as all in everything, I like this, his vision of Christ, all in everything, 
that's quoting from, I think, from uh, um, the heart of matter, of the universe moved and compenetrated by God in the totality of its evolution. You know, that is really the, this kind of the Christ Omega, the universal Christ. And they also quote, at the end of here, the French editor quotes um, about the divine milieu. He, he quotes the profession of faith, which is um, part of the heart of matter, where the heart of matter in 1950, uh, he ra Thea writes, it is now a long time since in the mass on the world and in the divine milieu, I tried to put into words the admiration and wonder I felt as I confronted perspectives as yet hardly formulated within me. Nice cario. Today, after 40 years of constant reflection, this is in 1955, he started writing in 1916. Today, after 40 years of constant reflection, it is still exactly the same fundamental vision which I feel the need to set forth and to share in its mature form for the last time. This is the heart of matter. With less exuberance and freshness of expression, perhaps, than at my first encounter with it, which was in 1916, but still with the same wonder and the same passion. Now, I was fortunate, and I want to tell you um, story. I told you earlier on this morning that in 1962, the Vatican edited the Monitum, and I, I didn't continue my story then, to not read Thea in Catholic seminaries, right? You were not allowed, or they had to be under lock and key. And Thea's work were under lock and key in the Russian Acab Academy when I went there in 1975 or whenever it was, you know, and they showed me the keys and you know, you had to specially make a plea to get at them, and they were in French. Anyway, um, my, uh, our theology, uh, our professor of dogmatic theology, who was a rebel, and who knew Teilhard's work very well, and who knew Mademoiselle Vortier very well, he proceeded then to give a public lecture series on the thought of Teilhard de Chardin in Paris, in the, most, uh, in the largest lecture theater in the institute, but because he was not uh, teaching the seminarians, he was inviting everybody, he could hold forth about Thea. So he gave six lectures on Thea. That's the first time I heard about it, you know, in 1962. And I was so, you know, over. And then he said, I lent you, I lent you the heart of matter as a photocopy, I mean, typed, not printed. It was not printed for seven, 20 years, 25 years. And that's the first essay that I ever read by Tia, and I feel really blessed because, as I said this morning, that's absolutely the key. If you read the heart of matter, 90 pages, and you read it with great reflection and, and meditate on it, you see that that is the key document to tell you, in Tia's own words, how he developed his vision and how he came to it and how he has pursued it for such a long time. As he said in one of the, in, in the later essay, The Christic, which is five years later, he said, as I quoted this morning, if I can find it now, the truth has only got to appear once and it will spread like fire. He felt still what I said this morning to you about Christ, you know, the total Christ, the universal Christ, the cosmic Christ, whatever words you want to use, he felt 
it is the right vision. You know, others will come and join that vision. That is what it, that was the belief he died with. And I want to finish, and I will finish on this because then you have a chance to talk because I could go on for hours here. What is very interesting, when Teilhard had died, he died very suddenly. Well, I mean, he wasn't very well. He had had a heart attack in, when he was two, year, two years earlier in France. He'd been in a, in a um, hospital for about six or seven weeks. You know, people were not sure whether he would. He couldn't do the expeditions he wanted to do. His health was not very good. But then he still afterwards went on two trips, I mean, two excavations, not so much practically, but looking at what other people did to South Africa. And he stopped in Brazil and in the Argentine, I think. Anyway, he had had a very good day. Um, Um, this is about Christ Omega. You can read this in my biography, but I can probably just feel it, find it, find it, find it. Um, there's a lot in there which you would find of very great interest. You see, the question you asked, what you asked this morning here, the, uh, what you asked in, in the Christic, in the Christic, in his essay written six weeks before he dies, uh, he felt his doubt, he expresses it. How is it then that as I look around me, I'm still dazzled by what I've seen, I nonetheless find that I'm almost the only person of my kind, the only one to see, question mark? How most of all can it be that when I come down from the mountain and in spite of the glorious vision I retain, I find that I'm so little a better man, so little at others, the wonderful, so little at peace, sorry, so incapable of expressing in my action and thus adequately communicating to others the wonderful unity that I feel encompassing me. Is there, in fact, a universal Christ? Is there a divine milieu? That's written six weeks before his death. Is there a divine milieu or am I after all, simply the dupe of a mirage in my own mind. I often ask myself that question. So he was not a, you know, enthusiastic little believer who just uh, went on about his own thought. No, but he says, and he affirms it at the end, I can't do all the things now. The truth, the very end, he says. Now, this is very important. When Teja had died, some of the French people compared his, the appearance of his face to that of Pascal, the, the death mask of Pascal. And when Pascal died in the year 1654, um, almost to the day, 300 years before, uh, before Thea, a piece of paper was found in the, clo in the clothes of his jacket which he had left, on which he had left a moving testimony of his spiritual experience. It begins with the words, fire, just like this day, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling joy, feeling peace, God of Jesus Christ. This is Pascal. When his countryman Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, because they both come from Auvergne, from the central volcanic region of France, when Pierre Teilhard de Chardin died 300 years later, he left an equally moving testimony 
written on Maundy Thursday, three days before his death, in his journal. It speaks in brief note form of the Christ of St. Paul, the cosmos in evolution, the human phenomenon, Christ as a center of the cosmos, the phenomenon of Christianity, and what he dearly loved to say and speak about, neo-Christianity. Christianity renewed and at a different level from the one we have today. But on his desk stood a picture of the radiant heart of Christ with a litany addressed to the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, the heart of world, written on its front and back. And I have a complete text here. It's been reproduced in, in the volume Christianity and Evolution. I can't read all this out, but you know, it has the God of evolution, the Christic, the transchristic, Jesus, heart of the world, essence, the motor of evolution, and he goes on and on. The world zest, the essence of all energy, the cosmic curve, the heart of God. I mean, you can't believe of someone writing all this in, in his final stage there. The focus of all reflection, the axis of the cosmic vortex, the heart of the world's heart, focus of ultimate and universal energy, center of the cosmic sphere of cosmogenesis, heart of Jesus, heart of evolution, unite me to yourself. That's three days before his death, last thing he wrote. So that gives you an idea. I mean, what is very remarkable is how his, you know, his life is like an arc. It comes all together. And there is this, you know, by, in conclusion, I could say a lot about the particular characteristics of his spirituality. But you see this absolutely internal coherence in spite of all the suffering, the difficulties, the problems he has had, and even his own doubts. He stayed, and he had said uh, some time before to one of his nephews, he would like to die on the day of the resurrection. And he died on the day of Easter, 10th of April, 1955. So you can see it's a, it's an extraordinary story, really. It makes a very, very good story. I mean, there are now films being made <laughs> about this story because people feel not enough people know about this extraordinary man. I mean, when I've talked to six former or so, or even my own students, they've been amazed. They've never heard the name of this person, never. But they get absolutely, they want to know more and more and more because he's such an extraordinary phenomenon himself. And I think it is worth uh, making sure that more people know about it. So I think I stop here and you can ask me questions. Any question, any question time. If, you, if there's something that you wanted to have uh, information on or wanted answer and I haven't touched, I mean, I'm very conscious that each of the things I've said could be supported and further developed by much more uh, material, but it's not possible, you know. You can spend hours just studying one essay. I finish with a prayer. I, I, that that I finish with a prayer, Mayor. What I was just going to say, I think it might be better if we have a tea break after you've now. just finished. Yeah, we'll have a tea break first, then go back into questions, if that's okay. Do that. Yeah, that's, is that fine with everybody? No? No? You don't. You don't want a tea. There are some... What do you do? you want to do? What's the majority view? What's the majority view? <laughs> I think... Um, what? You're for tea? You're for remain. 
You'll be as lonely as the rest of us. <laughs> anyway, um, well, whatever, whatever Kate is the manager here, she should tell us. Kate, what do you suggest? Tea or no tea now? Uh, I think tea now, if you don't mind. And, um, I don't then mind. Then we can be really refreshed and come back for really good questions and answers. Yes. Session. <laughs> yes. I, I think a few of us do need a. Um, whatever you say. A, a whatever stretch. you say. Thank you. F uh, 20 minutes. So we'll meet in here at uh, five past. Oh, really? This is a more trivial question. Mm. Do you know when did the Jesuits decide <laughs> Well, that's a good question. I can't really tell you. You know, there hasn't been really a big official turnaround, unfortunately. I mean, the Vatican has sort of slowly uh, eased up and people say it's all right. And, you know, the Pope's talking about Teyas cosmic liturgy and the mess on the world. And now. Uh, this Pope Francis loved out to see quotes from it and so on. So, you know, that's a... Tease downstairs that's in the church. So, you know, but to be more uh, affirmative about it, you know, I mean, many of his very radical uh, thoughts would have uh, jolly well quite big ecclesiastical organization implications. You know, like having women priests, for example, yeah? But the Pope is very... You see, the Pope is... I mean, there's been a delegation of Swiss women Swiss women doing a pilgrimage all last week to arrive in uh, Rome on the 2nd of July, and he refused to see them. He said, July, I'm not giving any audiences. You know, I mean, women get the slight, more than the slight hand. It's not a good situation. It's not a good situation. Where do you find the 90 pages? Is it published? Yeah, it's in the work, in the book, The Heart of Matter. The Heart of Matter begins oh, yes. with the essay, The Heart of Matter. Okay, with about his spiritual practices. Yes, The Heart of Matter. Okay, the Heart you. of Matter. Go and look for that. Sorry, any question? Uh, I just wondered if you, if you can get hold of a copy of the story by Jean Houston. Uh, if you can photocopy it here, I'll let you have a copy. Oh, wow. Well, sorry? Sorry, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether... Wait a minute. Well, it comes from. It was probably. I probably photocopied this from one of the Taya. It was reproduced. There used to be a Taya review uh, journal, and it was reproduced in that. But I'm not sure. I had put it aside for whatever number. See, you know, I may have put it. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, Jean Houston. Houston. No, yeah, Jean, 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 Houston is, uh, now it's not, yeah, it's not, um, here, I've, it's just I had yellow paper photocopy, that photocopy, my other photocopy is too tattered, you could probably get it from here, I've no, I'm pretty sure it's from the Teilhard Review, you would find it in a library, the Teilhard Review was a, journal that existed up to about 1994, and I can't, it, it says here it was in the 1980s, 1980s, sorry, 1980, so it would be probably 1981 or so, I would have, I've, but if you want a photocopy, it, you can I do it, if you want to, I'll you give it, it, yeah, give yeah. It try, try and see them, yeah? yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Dempsey. Yeah, I remember. Have you done it? Did you well, do it? It's ready, 
Oh, I produce it. A production, yeah, that might be. Is that difficult? I have no ideas about well, theatres. Yeah, I don't know. I have no connections with theatres. I, I uh, well, if you give it to me afterwards, I don't mind. But I need to have it back because it's my only copy there, <laughs> in the which I have at present. So we have a session, I understand, of questions and possibly some answers if we can find any. Um, Teya, I've written a whole uh, chapter in my new edition of uh, Teya, Spirit of Fire, his autobiography, uh, his biography, where I've got a postscript on the legacy. And there are lots of things to say, architects and uh, artists and thinkers and musicians been inspired by Teya's ideas and have been uh, creating works under this inspiration. The person I've got here, this goes some time back, is an American-Italian architect who, was, who is called Paolo Soleri, who created uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin cloister in the Arizona desert. This is, goes back quite a long. I've heard him speak on this. It's very, very interesting. And this is just a flyer I have in my files. So that's just one example. Then, you know, I've got the photograph which was lying here. Some of you may have seen about the big Omega sign, uh, which is in front of the uh, library at the University of Dayton. Uh, I don't know whether I've still got it here, but I can show it to everybody. It's here, it's here. Yeah, it's here, I think. Yeah, here. This is, you know, it's, a, it's actually an artist who is also a priest. This is outside in the open before you get into the library. Uh, I can pass it around, and it says underneath, Omega Point is the furthest point of the whole cosmic process a final point where the law of universal love will have reached its climax and its crown, Christ. This is a quotation from Thea. If you want to pass that round, please do so. But uh, I'm happy to answer questions if I'm able to do so. So if you want to, um, questions relating to what I've said or leading on from that, please do. Yeah. Yes, please. Oh, I, oh I, yes, 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 yes. Sorry about that. Thank you, Professor King. I'm, I'm looking at the diagram that you gave us. Oh, yes. Um, the, the, the kind of perspective diagram with Omega in the distance. Yes. You spoke a lot about, in, in the second session, uh, in Lumilia, about the power and energy of love. And you have love on this diagram, which otherwise seems to be almost entirely a scientific diagram. And um, I wonder if there's any way we can find a common language whereby love could be incorporated into the study of science. Mm. Well, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> you have to ask the scientists. You know, that is something... I mean, Teilhard, I think, had sometimes argument with, with some of his scientific friends. And uh, you'd have to really have a different kind of approach to science, which might come in the next 40, 50 years. You know, when I hear some scientists, it depends where they are positioning themselves, whether they're still face-oriented, as some of them are, or whether they are at least open to 
new thought developments and experiments. It depends very much who you talk to. I mean, it's, it's more than that, but it, it needs a, almost a change of consciousness and a change of age, you know, whether in our society, globally speaking, there can become a greater awareness of our human destiny being a destiny that is shared and belongs to all of us. I always used, I used to teach an Indian religion, and I lived in India for five years, and I, when I taught university courses on Hinduism, for example, you know, Vivekananda came to the West in 1893, and he said, you know, we, do, we want your science and technology, we don't need your spirituality, we have plenty more than you have. <laughs> so he, did, he didn't want that. But uh, you have to, you know, you have to awaken people, to make them conscious, to see something which they haven't seen before. Now, what I wanted to say with this example, I've looked a lot at the first World Parliament of Religions in 1893 and written uh, about the contribution of women, which has, not been, which has not been acknowledged about this. But I wanted to say that, um, I don't know what I want to say. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> How did I how did I land myself in this position? Let me just think. Um, why did I want to say? Oh, I know what I wanted to say. What I always used to say to my students is that when Vivekananda came to, uh, he came several times to the United States. He developed the Vedanta societies and so on. At the Bengal famine in 1905, the British, who were the imperial overlords of the Indians, they didn't run and rush away and organize big, uh, big official aid, you know, same with the Irish potato famine. You know, today, when you think what has happened in the last hundred, if not to say just last 50 years, how many NGOs are working around the globe, whether they are effective or not, or how well they do, or whether they're sufficiently supported, these are all very important additional questions. But when I think of the NGOs that have just, you know, multiplied, multiplied, there was no idea, there was no thinking of NGOs or that one nation would have the uh, ethical, not more than the obligation, the duty to help because other people are in such dire need. This, this is a modern, I mean, when you look, as I sometimes do, and some people have actually worked on this, what new words were created in the last hundred years? I mean, you can even look at the last 10 years of it. They express it, you know, like the biosphere or like, uh, like pacifism. I could mention quite a lot of words. They indicate a step forward in human consciousness, and that's collective consciousness. It may be one person who first has the idea and says a new word and doesn't think much of it, and someone else picks it up, and someone else picks it up, and it, you know, it's like going viral on the internet. Suddenly it is all over, and before it didn't even exist. And I feel that. There's so much happening now. And you see what Teja also foresaw, he talks about the network of communications around the globe. And I saw one of the first lectures on Teja that I heard in Britain was by, the, uh, by a French Dominican who came and talked at uh, the French church at Leicester Square. I don't even know whether it's still there. And that led eventually to the foundation of the British Teja Society. But anyway, I've never forgotten the diagram that this uh, speaker showed, you know, how, I mean, this is very well known, how for most of human history, uh, the human species spreads over the globe more and more and more and more on all sides till all patches are covered. You can't find a 
you can't find a piece on Earth which hasn't been tried upon, manipulated, or exploited by human beings. Now, even in the most isolated regions, everywhere the human footprint is there, and often to great detriment of nature. Now we are at a very, very important junction to think, how can we reverse this, or can we reverse this? Can we arrive at a more sustainable way of living and growth? I mean, this raises huge questions, but 100 years ago, those questions were not in existence. You know, they were not in existence. So we are at a new state of consciousness. And Teilhard was foreseeing this all the time. I mean, then you read what he writes also towards the end of his life, what he's thinking about, how, you know, will humans have enough energy for enough sufficient growth, the right growth, not the growth of capitalism, but the growth of collaboration, the growth of new political organizations, all that. And, you know, he, he talked about the option of the road. We are at crossroads. We are at a new step. We are moving either a level higher up or a level higher down, lower down. You know, it's a question of where are we going? And this question is getting more and more urgent. And what he saw was, you know, he talked about the increasing communication since the 19th century, you know, from Morse to shipping to telephone to whatever, you know, travel by ship, by, mostly by ship, then by, by railways at the same from the 19th century on, and electricity and all these kind of inventions. We think, oh, you know, we are progressing fantastically, except all these developments have implications which have a negative underside, to say the least. So now, you know, we have the internet and it has absolutely gone wild in 15 or 10 years, you know, and the increase in communication is just unimaginable. And some people on the internet call Teilhard the saint of the internet <laughs> because he kept saying, I mean, he didn't foretell or foresee our electronic communications. He couldn't have known. But he had the vision that we somehow would become terrestrians, that we would connect, that we would connect more closely, that we would collaborate, that we would need to collaborate. Otherwise, we will go to extinction. So See? this is love energy. Well, it is part of love energy. It is part of it. It's the energy of you know, the attraction and then the collaboration. See, in 1936, I think it was, he writes very strongly about when he writes about the earth, the age of nations is past. What do you want with your sovereignty? What do you want with being, I'm this nation and you're that nation, out you go. I mean, it doesn't work anymore. We know it doesn't work anymore because it's inhumane. And, and you know, Teilhard felt really, he says these things so early on that I sometimes think, yeah, did he really say this? I look up, is it really in the French or has someone made this up in English or so? I'll go always back to the French sources. Sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, thank you. This really follows from the question about a scientific idea of love. Yeah. I, I'm an engineer, and so I understand things like energy in a, in a very specific sense. And when people speak of spiritual energy, I find it really, really intriguing. And I conclude in the end that... Um, you find it what? Sorry. I, I, I think in the end that energy and that, that all the spiritual things are not that divorced from the material things. Yes. And, I, and so I just wonder how Teilhard interpreted this idea. Did he think there was a two separate 
world of material and spiritual, or did he see it as a con well, continuum? He, talk, he talks about two energies, but it's not material, spiritual so much. You know, he talks about this um, tangential and radial energy. You know, the energies that bring things together and centers them, and the energies that drive things apart. You know, so he, it's not material, spiritual. It's more the, the power of... I don't know enough about the um, notion of engineering, a notion of energy in engineering, but as far as I understand when people write about this, it's really, a, it's a different approach to energy, you know, and it doesn't completely um, model up or parallel what you talk about in energy in physical terms. But Teya always felt, if I understand him rightly, that you have to go deeper, you have to go below the physical, you know, we look at the physical and we know, ah, it's so clever and all the things we can do. But we have to look deeper than that. And, and that is the <coughs> difficulty. We haven't got there yet and we haven't really become sufficiently... Oh, it's a question of what he calls seeing. One could also call that the question of a growing and expanding awareness. What am I aware of? You know, how am... You know, like the sensitivity of animals, of a dog or of a rat, of a spider or something, and how they respond to their environment, you know, and how we, how you can multiply and multiply this, you know, in, in more complex uh, beings or more complex entities, how all this gets complexified, you know, and then through this complexification, something new emerges, which you could not have foreseen before, you know. You could, I heard a very interesting, very informal talk from an engineer just two nights ago uh, who works on bioengineering and who talked about all these extraordinary new patterns emerging and, and how, how they can feed this or try to feed this into robots to make them behave, you know, almost like human beings or like human beings. It was a very interesting talk because each time I had, we had quite a good discussion how I felt, you know, this sense of there is something, you know, I'm almost, I'm either at a cliff or I'm at a new step and there is some change of, you know, change of awareness, change of step, and there's something really great waiting there in front of us, but we can't see it right now. We have to somehow get there, and that will take time. So it's a very exciting time to be alive. It's a really very exciting time to be alive, a dangerous time. But, you know, this sense of, you know, not just living in the... John F. Ford, this uh, American theologian I quoted, he's just writing a book which is coming out soon, called Big History, he looks at big history, and he has these ideas of people's or whole cultures or societies approach to themselves, their society, and the world. And he feels that uh, a lot of cultures, a lot of um, nations, if you like, and peoples have all this related to the past, you know, the golden age, the past, the specific names for this. Others they now completely focus on the present, and others focus on the future. And the future model is really the anticipatory vision, and Teya figures very largely in that. You know, who are the thinkers? And Sokokin is such a thinker, Teya is such a thinker, you can think of some other people, some musicians, some artists, and also some inventors, you know, to, to drive something forward. It may be only a small thing in a particular area, but it contributes to this wider development of, of new things which we couldn't have invented before. So I don't know whether that answers your question. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> very lightly, not fully. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask a question that, bring, that brings it right back to the personal level. Okay. Each of our lives as members of this body, yeah. which is the planet. And actually, I think this isn't, this isn't anything new. I mean, Teilhard was re-articulating something very ancient. Um, and actually, I think the mystics are and were scientists. They were scientists of inner experience to understand, to explain what, what was going on for them. And what I think is, um, what is the, the role that we each have in this planetary body? This seems to me to be a really Teilhardian and more ancient question that's increasingly urgent. So the question is, you mentioned that he'd have been interested in the ecological mm. questions, and I don't mean just environmental issues. I mean each of us as members of the ecosystem. So I'm wondering, if he lived now, how would you see him articulating that in terms of living, actually living in and as part of the, the divine milieu in each of our own spiritual lives? Well, that's a very big question. Only he could answer. <laughs> I can't answer that for you. All right. Well, how do you think, well, well how do you see his work then as being well, articulated in each of our lives? That's well, I feel his work is very inspirational, very empowering, very life-giving. And it's challenging in both the way that he takes us forward and that we must look at his own positions and views as also being limited by his own time. You know, so the, it situates him in a particular moment in history where he did uh, have very great ideas, which are still very valuable, but uh, among those ideas are also certain ideas which we have already further developed. You know, so yeah, or the, not necessarily that he wanted, then he was, you know, his awareness was not universal. I mean, univer it was all-embracing and comprehensive as far as he uh, experimented with it, but no single individual can be completely, uh, embra can embrace the totality of all knowledge. That's not possible, see. So, I mean, he is far, any human being their views or in their attitudes. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus as a person. As a human being, well, it would be part of human beings to be. Uh, well, he only lived a certain span of years. He died, so he was limited to every other person. <laughs> he had to die. He had to die. So, they, you know, you can come up with ideas, I think. But it is, uh, I would say it's a very intriguing question. But, you know, it's worth speculating about. I, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't be able to give you answers, but I think it might. It might inspire creative thinkers, younger ones than myself, to think out something new, you know, to go forward, to be encouraged, to be encouraged. You know, Teilhard was very aware of this, how you become uh, encouraged. I tell you a joke. I went to his, the place where he wrote The Heart of Matter, which is really very close to my heart, Les Moulins, it's called. It's a chateau which belonged to his brother, Joseph, who I knew, Joseph and his wife. And his wife had grown up at the court of Napoleon III. It was very aristocratic. And uh, Joseph, the youngest brother, was in international finance. They picked me up at the, at the um, um, station in Vichy to drive to their country seat there. 
and it was extraordinary. Um, Mrs. Madame, Madame Thierry de Chardin, she was a little lady, and she sat in, I, can, I shall never forget, I sat in the back, and, and she said, you know, she said in French, you know, mon beau-frère, my brother-in-law, that was Pierre Thierry de Chardin, he was the future, and my husband, he is the past. <laughs> I shall never forget. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> I must tell this is grandniece. I'm not sure whether she knows. <laughs> oh, it's very funny. Hello. I just wanted to ask if you could remind me of the name of the writer who you said wrote similar things eight centuries before. Oh, uh, Maximus the Confessor, that's a famous uh, um, Greek, I think he's Greek, theologian. Ram, you said Ram, Sorry? Ram, something, Ramus. Oh, I see, oh, the writer, he's a uh, Ramanuja, Ramanuja, what have, oh, she's, oh, here we are, Ramanuja, Ramanuja, I, I give you the details here. Sorry. He's a very important great Hindu thinker. There are two thinkers of Vedanta, Ramanuja and Shankara. Shankara is a, um, what should I say, uh, a monastery. Ramanuja, well, they're both the two most outstanding theologians of traditional Vedanta, what is called Vedanta, Vedanta theologian of the 11th century. Now, he is more theistic than Shankara. Shankara wants to really just have oneness no personal element, but Ramanuja focused very much on the great cosmic view of Vishnu, the person of Vishnu. Now, what's interesting, someone said this in the discussion this morning, that, you know, it's not only in Christianity that we think uh, in Christ, the cosmic body of Christ, the universe, that you have that in certain other traditions, and you have in Hinduism the great notion of Purusha, the cosmic person that is. It's a person who is spirit altogether. Uh, and uh, I mean, I don't want to give a, start giving a lecture on Hinduism here. Purusha. Uh, but it's really, Ramanuja has this love of Vishnu, and there are these uh, songs and chants about Vishnu. And Vishnu is the cosmic person. Vishnu is really the entire cosmos is divine in that sense. And you see, Vishnu appears in eight avatars historically, and uh, one of them is Krishna. The god Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu. And uh, this avatar, Krishna, the little Krishna, uh, he's a little baby at some stage. So you get wonderful devotional things to this little baby god, and you get little statues, and you get wonderful devotional songs, particularly by the village women, on baby Krishna, who's you know, and then there is a description of baby Krishna. I can't remember now who was looking at baby Krishna. Um, suddenly opens his mouth and the person who's in front of him sees the entire universe. You know, it's a bit like Teya sitting or standing in or kneeling in front of the uh, heart of Christ, heart of Jesus, sacred heart. So Krishna is there described that the worshipper sees, not the little baby, and the baby's always represented, you know, crawling, the little crawling bubbly baby on the floor. That is the cosmic person. This is the cosmos, the universe itself. And suddenly the devotee sees this entire universe. It's 
magnificent, really magnificent. So that gives you a parallel from the 11th century, it's possibly even older, the Purusha, the cosmic person. So people have correlated or brought into conjunction the cosmic and the personal, the human, if you like. You know, it's, sorry? In a child, yes, it's it's terrific, it's terrific. Now, if you want to look at this particular study, uh, I haven't got the full details, but you can look them up on the web. The woman killed. Um, uh, now, wait a minute. I think I've got it. If it's Hunt, I think it's Hunt. Over the, uh, I think she she's married to a Dutchman. She has a half Dutch name. Over the, and it's called. Uh, I think it's called The World as Body of God. It's a comparison between Teya and Ramanuja about this uh, description I told you. It was done in sometime in the 1990s. I mean, if I had known, I had uh, thought about it, I would have put it on the bibliography. It's a very, very interesting study looking at these extraordinarily uh, unexpected parallels in, in writing, you know. Uh, hunt, can you see? Unhunt over Z with a Z. Z, that's a Z E E. O V E R Z E E. Uh, hand over Z. Um, so, can you read it? Is it okay? Can you read it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. I'd like to ask, is it on? Yeah. I would like to ask how Teilhard deals with the problem of evil. This morning you touched on how he in his personal life, experiencing all those negative things happening to him, how he could transform that for himself. But the problem of evil as such, in this um, such positive uh, vision that he has of the future. Well, he, you, you are asking a question that is very often asked, and it's in a way um, really unanswerable. You can now start lots of speculations about what evil is, whether physical evil, moral evil, whatever kind of evil, you know, who is the originator of evil. Teilhard sees it in a, what I would call, in a minimalizing way, in the sense that he thinks it's the uh, insufficiency, the lack of development, the look so much at moral evil. He does not do, that is an objection that is quite rightly made. He does, he's less concerned with moral evil, but he sees, you know, everything that grows has to overcome hurdles and has um, negative or, or diminished sides to it. That, so we learn also through our mistakes, you would say psychologically. You see, like, when I, early on this morning, I quoted these, um, uh, notes he had made or an essay he had written about uh, the Mongolian experience and what did he get out of it and asked this question all the time, you know, later in other ways he asked this to his correspondence, you know, if you have really got a really nasty experience, much worse than just uh, being disappointed when you do digs and you don't find what you want or what you had hoped for. Uh, he says that uh, I mean, what I find very insightful and very empowering, but it is not easy to do psychologically. You have to really educate yourself or train yourself to do this. He turns around and always says, even the worst experience, what good can I get out of this? In the sense, what can I make? What can I see in it 
that is empowering or building up for me or nourishing me rather than diminishing me and putting me down and making me uh, broken. You know, because he could have been a very broken person, very broken. But he, you know, everybody who knew him, there are lots and lots of witnesses from people in all classes and nations in a way, among the Chinese, among, you know, people felt that he had this sense of presence and communicate. He could speak to anyone, whoever they were. And I have uh, George Barber, one of his um, uh, colleagues for excavations in, the st in, in China, he had produced, uh, or he had copied in his book, he wrote a book on Tia. I had, I had a copy of the, the actual page, the, which is somewhere here, but I can remember. He's reproduced what the name was that the Chinese gave him. And the name of the characters comes to, when you translate it literally, Father Daybreak Virtue. They felt something new has dawned with this man. You know, it's quite interesting. They, they speculate about this. And he must have come across to them in the 1930s like that, because it was in the 1930s and 40s that he was most emerged, immersed in a Chinese milieu. So it's interesting to see that he comes across. But at the same time, this man was so discreet, it is almost difficult to believe. He had a lot of pain. He wasn't going on telling everybody how painful life for him or how difficult his superiors were or whatever. I mean, he would communicate with half a dozen Jesuit friends and some private friends also. So you get something in his letters. But he keeps it very, very much to himself, a lot of it. So for example, he had a very close friendship, not only with his cousin, who was probably his first love, who was a uh, when he came to Paris, she was um, the director of uh, a very big Catholic girls' school, which still exists. And she was more or less the same age. She had just gone a different kind of way of education whilst he was training as a Jesuit. And then when he came to Paris, he discovered the big, you know, he moves from a, from a little place in Jersey or wherever, Hastings, he moves to Paris. This is the great Paris in 19... 10, 11, 12, 1912. And, you know, this is the great world. She, because of her connections with all these uh, wealthy people who sent their girls to the school, she has got all these connections with artists and poets. And so she introduces him to all these people who have done the first degree in philosophy, in philosophy. women, I'm talking about women. And one of his friends becomes Leontine Zanta, who was a philosopher, most extraordinary woman. I can't talk to her about her now, but is a wonderful. Uh, correspondence with her, you know, and he learns all from her, this is about 1990, 1921, 22, about the feminist movement and women in the church and all this, and they have all these debates. And this woman, Leontine Zanta, she influenced Simone de Beauvoir, so you see the pedigree, you know, she also influenced Teilhard de Chardin before she Simone de Beauvoir. <laughs> so it's very interesting looking at the dynamics. Then uh, he met um, Marguerite, I mean Marguerite, he knew that she, this was his cousin, uh, I mean, he has this great first correspondence with her, the making of a mind, la jeunesse d'une pensée. And it's very powerful because it's the war years go together with the war essays. That's a, that's a whole universe by itself. I'd love to talk about this, but it's a separate lecture. And um, later in... in uh, uh, oh, here's another one. In the de Lomme, when he did his PhD, which he finished in 1920 a brilliant uh, 
certain, you know, got uh, whatever, whatever they get for a prize. Um, one of the research students who he was supposed to supervise was an American communist, <laughs> woman communist who was married to the editor of the French communist newspaper. She's called Ida Treat. She's very interesting. I mean, she finished up teaching at Rutgers. You know, Teilhard, Teilhard, Teilhard. And they had really, I mean, there were two temperaments. You know, she would argue for Marxism, he would argue against it. But he learned such a lot about her. And he said, my goodness, what energy there is in communism. Good heavens. <laughs> I mean, they had arguments all the time. But he kept uh, writing to her. And eventually, I think her marriage broke up, and she went back to the States, and she became a science professor at Vassar College. And the person, one of her students, was um, the second translate, the translator of the human phenomenon, Appleton Weber. She is, what's her first? Sarah, Sarah Appleton Weber. Uh, she, was, she said she saw the first photograph of Teja in the study of Ida Treat, who was one of Teja's correspondence for a very long time. Then when he gets to Beijing, he meets um, Lucille Swan, who was an American sculptor, was quite bohemian, had been married to a painter, uh, and the marriage had broken up. So she goes with one of her friends uh, on a journey to the Orient, and she was supposed to come back. But she's, she stays in Beijing. She has a, um, an atelier. Uh, you know, she does her sculpture in Beijing, largely for the expatriate community. And she meets Teya at a dinner party, who sits next to her in the early, I think it's the late 1920s, early 30s. I can't remember the exact date. And they get into discussion. And this becomes a great story, a great love story. And there's a lot of correspondence between the two. But you see, Teya never gave up. Lucille Swan absolutely wanted him to marry, to leave the Jezebelian. He would not have any of it, not any of it. And the correspondence wasn't published till very, very late in comparison to other correspondences. And it's a very powerful correspondence because they discuss very openly questions about sexuality and spirituality, about how, and Teja writes very openly. He says, well, maybe in another 10 years, 20 years, he doesn't give the, the, the dates actually, but he says, you know, the time may come that people take very different attitudes to what we take today. You know, that people may be more open, that the connection or the relationship between the sexes would be more uh, honest, more open. You know, he, they speak about this very freely, which in the 1940s was not exactly the topic of the day. But, uh, you know, you have that. Quite amazing what he writes, because um, Lucille Swan translated quite a lot of the essays from French into English, typed them, and they got distributed everywhere. You know, so that she also did part of the typing and the cycle styling and sending these things. And then, you know, when Teilhard brought her, I think he brought her this—I uh, can't remember whether it was the heart of me—he brought her something, and she said, "Oh, you know, this is this is where I recognize you, like you were, because he got." You know, he had these heart attacks. He was really getting older. And it was difficult. The relationship became quite difficult. And she lived in Washington. He lived in New York. Uh, but she kept, you know, she kept close to him in terms of writing letters. They did write letters the last year of his life, you know. But the, and she went to his funeral, of course. He died in, 19, in April 1954, as I said. So, no, 55, 55. Any other question? 
Yes. Um, going back to this question of, of his death and his um, view of death, and you said to this gentleman over here, you know, yes, but Christ died, and that was sort of like that's it, or he had to die. Um, so in a sense, we all have to die. But what was Tyard's view of an afterlife or the purpose of our life here on this earth to um, to pass on into another well, world? Well, he, you know, I mean, he writes this very clearly also before he dies, so long before that. You know, he feels that the full presence that he has only sensed in the universe is fully disclosed to him after death. Death is not the end of life. It's another way of life. It's a new way of life. To look at this, he's not the only one who looks like that, but he, he really felt this very strongly, and he, he believed that very strongly. So I would think uh, it, he, you see, because our purpose, he sees us as being engaged in what we would now call co-creation. We have to really move the work of creation forward, positively forward, build up, as he says, build up the body of Christ, uh, complete the evolution, and the humans have a great work to do, great work to do to complete or to bring it to its fulfillment, which may take thousands and thousands, if not millions of years. But it's this kind of view that we are co-creators in God's creation, and that we... That's also a very ancient Christian view also, you know. So he, he really links up with, with biblical views, with patristic views, but he then interprets them in a more dynamic, modern way, if you like, you know. And he sees, uh, he has in 19, well, in the war, yes, he writes in one essay, I'm an atom in the body of Christ. I'm an atom, be an atom in the body of Christ. He feels really, we all, you know, it's, 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 working together to build up something bigger than any of us or all of us, you know, to, I mean, it's, it's a real corporate community vision. And I think this is where young, I mean, when I've talked to six formers or so, which I haven't done recently, but, you know, they can really cotton on to this. You know, they really like the idea. And this is why it would be good to have his ideas much better known because his, his, um, example is so inspiring and so strong and it is so um, you know it's a, it's a very very Christian example but it appeals to lots of people who are not Christians you know like some people in Pakistan Muslim students have you know and some people who are not at all Christian they're inspired by the energy and by the hope and by the vision of you know doing things together being being much greater than any of us is alone, individually. And that, I think, is very important. Thank you. Uh, I love the story about the, um, when he was a stretcher bearer and he had no wounds, although he'd been doing it for years. And you gave uh, a Muslim name. Could you spell it for us, please? <laughs> I tried to. No, it's, it's not so easy. Maybe we do a new one because... Um, you know, these are Arabic words. I don't know Arabic myself, but I'm told 
that this is the designation of a Frenchman who lives in North Africa, who really feels at home and feels an African, even though he or she is not an African. A Sidi, a Sidi. And they call him Sidi Marabou. I can't remember which Arabic word this is connected to, but that is what I have read it means, that it really means this, uh, this person that is you know, empowered by God, covered or enfolded in the grace, well, not grace, but in, you know, that God protects you against all vicissitudes. You know, you're not going to suffer because you're safe. It's a safety aspect of it. And, how, and the strength of your faith, they recognize the strength of his faith because he could, from what people said and have documented, he could speak to everyone all of them, wherever they stood or came from, you know, and this is an, a remarkable capacity to have. You have this later in China, because when they went on the long croisière jaune, the yellow crossing, they were, oh, it was at least nine months, through winter and summer and everything, they got uh, caught prisoners by the warlords. This was going to uh, Urumqi, which is now, you know, a big polluted city with a railway station and everything. I mean, in 1930, that was just a little village, you know. And the, the local warlords, the governors and warlords, they wouldn't, they didn't want this group to proceed. Now, the group was perhaps 26 people or more, and it was uh, an enterprise run by the French car firm Renault. They were trying to um, try out, now, what, Raupen, what is this in, in English? The, the um, it has a special name. The cars said, what are the caterpillar, caterpillar cars? They had invented these caterpillar cars, and they wanted to know how these huge vehicles would perform in the desert. So they went on this yellow crossing, starting one, one lot started on the west, and met, and they all met somewhere in Kashgar, in the middle of, I've actually been to all these places, believe it or not, but it's, uh, it's so different today. I went there in 1994, which is 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, it's um, uh, when you read, you know, I mean, they, they didn't expect to be in prison, in tents, guarded by soldiers, by these warlords. Uh, their communication was cut off. They couldn't radio or anything. But someone very clever eventually found out how to get reconnection, and eventually they were freed. But what is said, that whenever they were somewhere and there was fighting going on, someone was hurt, Teya would immediately... Uh, you know, be willing to to uh, bandage someone's leg or someone's arm, and you get all sorts of Chinese uh, uh, testimonies that I've read. It's absolutely remarkable. You know, and then he trained young Chinese uh, sociologist, one very famous geologist, Lin Pang, who was a young man, 18 or 19, when when they started with the cave uh, at Shukutian, it's called the cave where they found Peking man. Uh, I mean, I met him as a professor of 90 or something. In 1981, the UNESCO in Paris had a special celebration for Teilhard's 100th birthday. And this Chinese person came along, this Père Leroy, who had also walked, worked in, um, in China with Teilhard. Uh, because the two men, when, when they couldn't get out of Beijing, when the Japanese occupied everything, and they couldn't go for excavations and fossil hunting or anything, uh, they did a lot of uh, laboratory research. and they, they founded a laboratory for, I think, what was it called? Bi biogeology, biogeology or something. And then they wrote lots and lots and lots of papers. So 
you know, there were these young people, and Tegya also uh, helped several Chinese students from Beijing at the time to, to get um, stipends to study in Paris or somewhere else in France. So he did a lot, but he, you know, it's not big advertisement. It's, it's, you know, he just did it and got on with it. But these Chinese have written about this. Lin Pang, who I met when he was about 90, but who met Tegya when he was in his 20s, he writes about, you know, what it was like working as an assistant with this great man and how absolutely kind and helpful he was. And he spoke about this in Paris also. And it's very moving because, you see, he, he didn't, he fitted in and he could say to people in every possible way, which is very remarkable. I mean, it shows a, a generosity of spirit and a way of being able to, to recognize people for what they are and really uh, help them or encourage them or relate to them, just chat with them, whatever. But I feel it's a great human trait to have. You know, it's worth, worth cultivating. <laughs> so, another question. So, what have, you, have I overrun the time? It's four o'clock here. Yeah, people want to go. Yes, so is it time um, so to stop? <coughs> so, I have one, one more question. One more. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could say a few words about his understanding of the relationship between Christ and God and Jesus and the Christ. So, how did he see the Christ? Is it like the Logos, the manifestation of God? You're asking for the impossible. <laughs> But we've, we've spoken a lot about the Christ and we've yeah. mentioned Jesus. Uh, even, even a few words would be good to see how he, how he understood them. Well, I would have to really think this out. This is not, you know, I don't want to give a flippant answer. I mean, you have to really think this through very, very constructively. And that really relates to the um, theology of the Trinity, which I have also worked on. And I'm not going to go back to this now. But uh, to give you uh, my experience, uh, at the time of St. Augustine, when the Christian theological doctrine was formulated, there was another Roman thinker called, uh, who was also originally from North Africa, Marius Victorinus, who was the same age or slightly older, I can't remember, uh, than Augustine, who developed a schema, a theory about the Trinity, which is quite different from Augustine's, which was never declared heretical by the church, but which is quite different. You see, so it still exists, but nobody has done anything with it. And so this gives you just uh, the example that there is more to, you know, to the Trinity than meet the eyes. Different people have tried to provide uh, different uh, theories. And today, you see, modern, particularly Anglican theologians have called this about the social, the communal trinity, and so on. And they again have a different pattern. So if you work with Father, Son, and Spirit, you, come, come, you can develop all sorts of themes. How can we understand this, right? And it is really an unanswerable question. Now, Marius Victorinus is very interesting in the sense, I mean, he uses the terms logos for, for before he speaks about Jesus, the logos. And the logos is um, androgenous. What do you say? It's both female and male. It's not just one, one gender, you see? And androgynous, that's what I was looking for. Androgynous, so that this, is, this leads you up a very different path, but it was never developed. But it shows you that very early on in the church, when actually the Trinity was just being 
thought up, if you like, or developed in terms of its, under, its, its categories, there were different possibilities of trying to make sense of this teaching. So I feel really that we are probably too past-oriented, too past-bound to think it's exactly how it was understood in the past. One has to look at new theological constructions, you know, and when you look at the person of Jesus, you know, the human Jesus, when you look at all the different um, theologies of Jesus that have, uh, that have been proposed, particularly by so-called third-world theologians, both male and female, you get a, an extraordinary variety of views. You know? I mean, it's very, very interesting here, and we have a wonderful seminar and look at things uh, in, in great depth. And I think uh, it should be like this, because why should you just have one definition and one model which covers everything and is exclusive? You know? It is really much more interesting to see from what sides people look at this. But I, you know, I was greatly empowered, greatly encouraged by working on the Trinity. I thought it's such a challenging subject. But you see how, you know, how people um, relate to Jesus or relate to the notion of the Christ. You know, Rudolf Steiner has written extensively on Christ, you know, and on the new uh, age coming and, and all sorts of completely different speculations, again, from the ones we have in Christian theological terms. So there, there are lots of different ways of um, reflecting on this. And I think we, we just have to try. I don't think any one of these views needs to say this is the absolute truth and nothing you, else but the truth. You did truth. mention the Trinity there in yeah. the session this morning. What did I say part, about <laughs> what? part of the evil evolution? Did I yes. mention the Trinity? Did yeah, I, right. I can't remember the Trinity. Did I mention the Trinity? No, I don't remember. But uh, you. You can find his work. I translated the anti-Aryan treatises about the Trinity. It's, it's, it, is, it is actually translated into English also. You can find it in English. Marius Marius Victorinus. Okay? Marius Victorinus. He's more or less at the same age as Augustine. Um, I feel really, you know, these theological speculations are really very challenging and very thought-provoking. But we must not be mistaken to think this is the only way of approaching them. You know, there are other ways. So I feel really this, um, the doctrinal rigidity can sometimes be very stifling and life-killing rather than life-nourishing. And I'm more interested in what feeds lies, what gives us... See, Teilhard was absolutely dedicated to the word, to the expression, le goût de vivre, the zest to live, or the taste to live. Le goût de vivre, he writes from the day one about le goût de vivre. You know, what does give us, you might say, what makes sense to you? What, what keeps you alive? What gets you out of bed? What motivates you to do anything? You know, why do you strive? What are you looking for? This is le goût de vivre. You know, any child that is born wants to live. Any puppy that wants to live, you know, it is, it is so extraordinary. And we have a, I'm originally from Germany, we have a German word called Urvertrauen, which I love. You know, the Teja always speaks about the trust in life. Now, Vertrauen is uh, trust, Vertrauen. You trust, you absolutely trust 
that you won't be left alone. Yeah. And ur means a primal, you know, ur, ur, it's really the elemental primal trust in life. And you look at any human being, not the adults, not the teenagers, not the children when they start, you know, moaning about this, moaning about that, but the, the children who are unaware, who have not really developed the self-reflective consciousness, little toddlers, I mean, you know, if they haven't been mishandled by their parents, they are always full of drive, energy, you know, smiles, you know, trying to out things. It's this push of life, and it's this taste for life. They want to live, and we have to, we have to, I mean, the pattern of life is given to us. We, we need to eat to live, we need to sleep to live, we need to excrete our remains, our food to live. I mean, it's a whole cycle. I heard an absolutely brilliant lecture by a biologist about this once, you know, and it made so much sense, and I'd never thought in these categories. But, you know, what is life? Where does it, you know, all this circle, it's a circle, it's a circulation of, of goods, in our case also of, of thoughts, of experiences, and this Urvertrauen, I love this word, to keep and keep this alive in your students or in your children or in old people, to be alive what it means to be alive. It's absolutely a great adventure. I mean, we feel sometimes so tired, so hungry, so down, so depressed. But, you know, to get, to get out of this kind of mood and say, wait a minute, you can have a completely different take on this. If you try, I mean, is trying, trying. I am currently listening to some absolutely beautiful, inspiring um, interviews with Satish Kumar, who some people may know, who is also quite a wise guru, where he's, he speaks about the same thing in a way. He says, you know, don't be held down by fear. Just conquer fear. You know, try. And it makes you free. You know, he says pain. They, they talk, it's in a discussion about pain and about dying. And he said, don't be full of fear. You know, it tells you. Try to positive side, try to be encouraged, try to be, and then by overcoming the fear, you get new consciousness, you get new strengths, you know, and it is, it's a very deep psychological pattern also, and you can do that, and I think a lot of people uh, benefit or can benefit from this. This is why I say it's, you know, it's psychological, but it's also spiritual. It's a spiritual practice where Teya really tries to deal with our the activation of our the divinization of our activities and passivities. Now, having said that, I want to just close on a word of warning that the English translations are sometimes quite deadening. You know, you really, particularly the early writings are very, very lyrical. The uh, writings in time of war, which are unfortunately very little known, but they're so lyrical you have to really read the French and the. Uh, some of the English translations are either faulty, I mean, not very often, but sometimes they're faulty, or they are minimizing the significance of the sentence or the meaning of the sentence, or they are false, uh, or they're mistaken, you know. So uh, you get a try, and this, this sounds, and sometimes I can't read it myself, I think, oh, gosh, this sounds so Cartesian, so dry, so dull, do I really want to read this, you know. Uh, but in the original, it's much more vivid, vivid. But none of Teilhard's writings are as vivid in later years as they were during the First World War. The, the really lyrical poetry and the, the vision when it breaks open is in the war essays, which are absolutely splendid and quite difficult to understand sometimes. But this cosmic life, I mean, I have unfortunately not quoted from that. 
it is so full of this joie de vivre, this joy of life. And that's two or three days before the Battle of Verdun. Just imagine, it's absolutely unimaginable. He writes, he starts that essay, I'm writing these words out of an exuberance of life. Exuberance. Then you wait for the can, well, not the cannon, see, machine guns and all this, in the trenches, the exuberance of life. You think, what is happening to this man? Is he mad? What is he seeing? And there is, I'm just reading, I had not read this before. Someone pointed out to me that there is a very short correspondence, only existing in French, and someone just got it for me, between a friend of Teilhard, who was also a geologist, no, I think he was a biologist, and him, um, very, very committed Christian, Catholic, who goes to mass even during wartime, you know, whenever he can in, near the trenches. But they don't agree. Teilhard constantly has his vision. You know, they, they exchange letters and he say, I see the all and the whole. You know, and this fellow says, what's the whole? You know, are you not worried? Why are you not upset? And he writes to his wife. He's not really taking note of, <laughs> of all the violence, you know. He's not taking note of the violence. And Teilhard sees the positive. He said, how can you see the positive side of war? And you can see that Teilhard was not unopposed. You know, even his friends didn't necessarily agree with him. So he's a pretty strong man <laughs> that he can stand up to it. See? Have you got another question, or should we finish? Have you had another one? Yeah. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. And is that kind of what he's is that do you think that's what he's kind of saying? Yeah. It gives him another dimension. Yes. It makes everything more possible for him. Yes. 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 I mean, you could say, you know, from a religious point of view, you could say, but that's an incredible blessing and grace. You know, not everybody, you can't acquire it. You can't go around the corner and buy it for yourself. It's not available on the market, you know. <laughs> but from a psychological point of view, and people who are in psychotherapy and who really help people or who are counselors, you can do a lot to encourage people, you know. And when you see the or read about the life experiences of various people who have had a very tough life, or the survivors from concentration camps. Where did they get their hope from? Where did they get their resilience from? You know, where do you get the resources, the wherewithal, when you actually have nothing to draw upon yourself, you know, inside? And, and, you know, how do you do that? Isn't it really a question? You're talking about his activity and we have to do things. Yeah. But isn't it, I think you touched on, it's a question of trust receiving and being open to receiving. Yes, that, that, but you can't, you can't understand, I, I, if I understand you rightly, I don't think you can understand the receiving in a totally passive way. I just sit there and wait for things to come to me. You have to be really intentionally ready to receive, you know. Not everybody is open to receiving. Some people are quite closed. Yes. To, yeah. You have to have questions. Questions, questions, questions. Yes. Question. You know, I mean, not questioning in the sense that I don't believe anything you say and I question everything you say, but questioning in the sense, you know, where do I get from here to there and from there to there? And, you know, and why is this happening or why is, what can I do about that? So it's this 
this uh, intellectual curiosity and questioning. But I mean, this is what we should teach children. You know, we should teach people to, to be aware and take notice of where they are and what's happening surrounding them and, you know, what's happening next door and all these kind of things, or what's happening in the, in the classroom or in the nation or well, wherever. Rilke said you've got to live for questions. You have to live for yeah. questions. That's an order, is it? It's an <laughs> I finish with a prayer from Teyas Royes. This is from the, I think it's from the 1918 essay, The Priest. He writes about the priest quite a lot uh, in how he understood also his priestly um, calling. Now, this is somewhat um, rephrased by some American who put this as a, it comes from the text of this essay. Oh God, I wish from now on to be the first to become conscious of all that the world loves, pursues, and suffers. I want to be the first to seek, to sympathize, and suffer, the first to unfold and sacrifice myself, to become more widely human, more nobly of the earth, than any of the world's servants. That's the text in this particular um, essay, which I like very much. He talks somewhere else about, you know, how some of uh, the modern developments of the atheisms or so many things that happen in the, work, uh, in the world dehumanize us. You know, it's a question about how, how does the process of what he calls hominization, i.e. from ancient geological times that human beings became human beings after being really more animal-like, not having developed their brain and the consciousness, I mean, that wasn't developed in them biologically. Uh, it's a question of uh, not to be dehumanist, but uh, he says, if these trends dehumanize it, dehumanize us, much of Christian teaching, which is badly taught, underhumanizes us. You know, it doesn't humanize it sufficiently. It doesn't dehumanize us, but it doesn't fully humanize us, which is also an interesting insight. So I, I stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you.